realized I usually use this to put stuff on. And I needed this thing. Is the piano mic off? Because it's going to make some noise if it's not. All right. That was all ad-libbed. I get here several hours early every Sunday, and I, for some reason, am still running around like a chicken with his head cut off during the service. And actually, I don't even have my tablet because I forgot to charge it, and I uh, went to do it, and I lost it along with my glasses. And so uh, this will be a colorful adventure. Uh, if you, We don't have children's church, but we do have nursery. If you would, uh, if you got a, a kid, or if you are extraordinarily childish, stay there. Uh, you can head on down and get snacks and play uh, while everyone else hears me talk. Um, if somebody could find me a pair of glasses, like, oh, Abby's not here, uh, Jose. Or if you find, look on the desk back there, maybe, and on. Yes. Never mind, Titus. I'm going to wear Kelly's. Are they pink? No. But they're bifocal. Are they reading glasses or not? Okay. I'm going to tip my head back. How? Oh, all right. Um, uh, I, uh, wow, am not off to a good start. Um, I will uh, do my best this morning. Um, I, we're going to be doing Psalms, so if you want to find Psalm 51 in your Bibles, uh, I have historically, actually Titus, I would like a pair of my glasses. They do look, make my hips look fat compared to Kelly's, but I, I uh, no, just go get mine. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Titus is my assistant today. Uh, so we're going to be in Psalm 51. We're going to pray in advance of this. There's a lot to do in this psalm, and I'm trying, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what to cut and what not to cut, and I'm going to try to not go super long, okay? I am not promising, but I'm going to try. Got it? Uh, If I go super long, like, hopefully it's a blessing, uh, because you get something out of it, um, hopefully, even if it's just a little extra sleep. Uh, so let's pray in preparation for the message, and we'll dive on in. Oh, you got a pair for me. Oh, the little, is it the little weird thin ones? Yeah, I can't wear those. It's going to be a different pair. I'm so sorry, guys. That's, I, he, he's feral, and he takes after me. So, And I'm not sorry for anyone. Anyway, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning um, as we dive into the scriptures today, as we look at the word. I pray that this would be a time of worshiping you with our hearts and our souls, Lord God, that, that the things that might get in the way, those hard spots, those, those fears, those doubts, those, those struggles, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you would dig it out and take it away. And most of all, Lord, I pray that you would get me out of the way. I, I always, I, I think I'm clever, and I think I, I can do things that are not my business to do, and I think it's, help me to step out of the way and let your spirit speak this morning. Help me to step out of the way and and not, uh, and not quench the fire of, of your spirit or the gospel. I pray that folks would come to know you more by hearing today from your word. I pray that folks would thirst and hunger for righteousness that comes only through Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Titus. So switching away from the tablet and using paper makes it really hard if you're, because I'm going to tip back and I'm going to fall off the stool and everything else. Um, about... Uh, 16 years ago, I'm going to warn you up front, there's a little bit of grossness in this story, and I'm going to try to tone that down. Um, About 16 years ago, when I worked at the home, uh, I had an evening, I went to bed, and it was weird, and it's going to sound weird, trust me, I'm going somewhere. I I went to get into bed, and I, I, like, I may have cleaned my belly button. Oh, guys, every one of you does it. So, back off, men. Uh, women, I assume, don't have to. Like, I don't know. But I, I discovered a little spot that was just kind of hurt. Isn't that weird? Like, you find a little spot all of a sudden, it's like, wow, that hurts. Not like a sharp pain, it was just a dull 
barely there pain. And I remember stopping and thinking, what is that? That's so weird. And despite the fact that I experienced pain, by the way, pain exists for a reason, right? Nobody likes experiencing pain, right? But it, pain is kind of an alarm bell. It lets you know that something is wrong. And if you don't feel pain, you could step on glass and bleed to death, right? Like, you, you need it. You don't like it. But sometimes as you get older, youngins, and I'll know this eventually, you discover these weird little pains and you think, well, that's another thing. And then you ignore it. Or if you're a man, you experience pain and you think, uh-oh. And you're like, well, it's probably better that I don't think about that. And then you move on. Um, in this instance, I felt this weird little spot and it kind of hurt. And... Uh, I thought, well, it's probably not that big a deal, and I, I went to sleep. And when I woke up in the morning, I discovered that um, I had swollen. My belly had swollen. I was not pregnant, nor sympathetically pregnant, uh, because we didn't have a baby until a few years after that. Abby did not come along, although I think Josh might have been born by then. I'm not sure. Um, but I, I woke up, and it was like somebody had cut my stomach open and stuck a grapefruit under my skin. And it was weird. I woke up and thought, oh, wow, that wasn't there when I went to sleep. And it kind of scared me a little. And I thought, well, I should probably go to the doctor. And I went back and forth about what to do. And I thought, well, it's probably not a big deal. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. Again, I cannot emphasize to you enough a grapefruit of swelling in my stomach. And I, I uh, so I called the doctor and they set me an appointment in the afternoon. And I, I did not emphasize that it might be an emergency. I did not call them again later, um, but they put me in the fill-in. You know how doctor's offices do that? They have that fill-in appointment, like later in the day, like, oh, yeah, well, you know, we'll get you in here. And I, I hung out all day, and I watched TV. And that's what I did. And I did my best to ignore it. And after a few hours, it started to hurt some more. And a few hours after that, it hurt a whole lot more. And a few hours after that, I was having trouble standing up straight. And I put on a different movie because it's a lot easier to watch a movie than to think about the fact that, you know, like you can't stand up anymore. Um, I was trying to ignore what was going on. And I, uh, I will come back to this in a moment. But what we're going to be looking at today is we're going to look at David as he comes into a place of repentance, okay? And this is Psalm 51. The Psalms are all songs. They were songs originally written to be sung in worship. And, like, we don't have the tunes because, like, they didn't invent uh, the, the appropriate system for, like, writing music yet. And so, like, we don't know what the songs were. Um, we also, like, they, I think they only had eight tracks back then. I don't know. Uh, James, any thoughts? Eight tracks then? Okay. Well, you were there. I was figuring. Uh, he's here. I don't pick on him. I, I feel like I'm failing as a pastor. Uh, and so um, we don't know what the song was, but we know what the words are. And so we're going to be looking at this psalm, and we're going to look at it today not as a piece of text to be dissected, because if you dissect a song, you lose the joy of it, right? You just do. There's no joy in a song that you tear into pieces. We're going to look at this in terms of, can you bump me ahead? In terms of it being, um, like, real. In terms of it being something that was written by a man who was carrying enormous weight. And he had this hurt and this pain and this misery in his life that came from his own actions, which makes it even worse. There's nothing worse than screwing up big and looking and realizing, oh, wow, I did that, and I have no one to blame but me, and this is it, right? And so we're going to dig into this, and a little background, um, you know, he, David didn't wake up with a big swelling spot in his belly. David woke up with a prophet staring him face to face. The prophet was Nathan, and Nathan had come to David because David had sinned. Whether the sin was secret or not, I don't know. We'll discuss that in the deep dive. There's a whole lot of cool stuff associated with it, but not today. Um, David had not gone to war with his army, which was very unusual. 
Like the, the story in 2 Samuel 11, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it, it happens during the time that the armies are out to war. And um, David did not go with his armies. He stayed home. He's out on the roof of the palace in the evening. And like Israel is a desert, which is why everybody fights over it. Um, because it's hot and dry and really hard to live there. And so everybody wants it. Um, <laughs> and he, he went up on the roof where it was cool. Because in the evening, these roofs were all flat because it didn't snow like it does here. You could go up there in the evening and it would be cool and the house would be hot, right? We, everybody in Montana knows this right now. You know, like there are places that are cooler than your living room most of the day if you don't have air conditioning. By the way, pastoral air conditioning, uh, just saying. Some of you guys will say that you're cool enough, but um, <laughs> nothing. Ow. Uh, he's up there and he sees Bathsheba. And she is taking a bath on the roof, which was not unusual. And David hangs out and watches her, which maybe wasn't the right thing to do. And as he watches her, he sort of gets excited, as men do. And he thought, well, I'm going to have that lady over. And so he found out who she was. He found out she was married, and he had her over. And he seduced her, and um, she got pregnant. And when her husband, like when he found out, he had her husband come back. And tried to get him to be with her so that he could. There's a lot to it. I'm going to get into it today, okay? Um, if you want to know more about this story, Wednesday uh, is the day. Um, and the husband doesn't play ball. He doesn't do what David wanted him to do. And in the end, in an effort to protect himself, David sends the husband, Uriah, back to the war front. And instructs, like, has him deliver a letter when he goes with a seal on it so he couldn't read it, saying, during the hottest of fighting, put this man in front and retreat and leave him there. And Uriah did not come home. And David married Bathsheba. And everything was fine. Right? Except that the chapter ends with the most ominous phrase in the entire Bible. God was not pleased with David. And then Nathan shows up. And Nathan calls David out in a way that forces him to own the fact that he did something outrageously wicked. And that he had been maybe hurting, maybe not. Sometimes you do wicked things and it just feels good. Right? That's why we do wicked things. Because they're fun. But this outrageously wicked thing he did, it is there and there's a part of him that knows that he's fallen short of who he's supposed to be before God but he's gotten away with it and the secret is kept whether it's a secret or not it is there like it is he has gotten away with it and then Nathan comes and forces David to face his own sin and David experiences a lot of hardship in the days that come and again not today um, this psalm psalm 51 is about David owning Owning that he failed. Not that he made a mistake. Because mistakes are things you make when you write a paper. When you write your address on something and you get the wrong year for, you know, on a check. And you get the wrong year for like six months. And they change it again and you start making the same mistake again. Like, that's a mistake. David, David killed someone. Right? David abused his power. David... David fell short of what God intended him to do. And David, like, faced it. And he faced it hard. And he wrote a song about it. Because that's kind of what musicians do, right? Like, they hurt and they write songs about them. And they feel joy and they write songs about it. So the Psalms are so powerful because they're songs. And it's why we're not going to dissect it. Um, actually, Charles Spurgeon said something. Oh, Lord, that's so small. Uh, is it? I post, like, he was writing his book, uh, The Treasury of David. Uh, which is actually a multi-volume set, so you can read your Bible as you follow along uh, when we get there. He said, like in his introduction to it, he said, I postponed expounding on this psalm, Psalm 51, week after week, feeling more and more my inability for the work. Often I sat down to it and rose again without having penned a line. It is a bush burning with a fire that does not consume. 
And out of it a voice has cried to me, Don't draw near and take off your shoes. The psalm is very human. Its cries and sobs are of the one born of woman, but is weighted with an aspiration to be like the divine. As if the great father were putting words into his child's mouth, such a psalm may be wept over, may be absorbed into the soul, may be exhaled again in devotion, but commented on, ah, where is he who, having attempted it, can do other than blush in his defeat? Um, why did I include that? Because, because I'm just not going to be able to do this justice. And I'm not going to dissect it. I'm not going to do the poetry thing or the English class thing. I want to. Oh, do I want to. But in reality, it's a little like taking one of the great songs and dissecting it and explaining. You know the songs I'm talking about? I, for some reason, the only song that keeps coming into my head is Brown Eyed Girl. <laughs> Where you drive and you put it on and it's just like, it's one of those songs. You can't not sing along with it, right? Or Hallelujah by uh, Leonard Cohen, but not his version, which I don't like, but the other version that was in Shrek, where you, or the one that Rebecca did for Christmas one year. Um, you hear it, and it just kind of cuts through you, and you can't dissect it. You can't critique it. You can't anything. You just got to feel that, that song. You got to feel it through you. And this is one of those psalms. And so as I dive into this, please understand, I'm going to do my best. I, I will not be doing any sort of analysis today of the deeper stuff. We're going to look at this, psalms in, this psalm in terms of who we are as people in relation to a God who is perfect. And we're going to start in verses 1 and 2. Oh, my goodness, I've already gone all kinds of time, and I'm just getting to the first two verses. It is never going to end. Have mercy on me. Actually, let's, real quick, there's a heading for this. And the headings are sort of a weird thing, but it's worth reading out loud to you. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Everybody knew. This is in the hymnal. When your name and your sin show up in the hymnal for everyone to look up on Sunday morning, like, you ain't hiding it. Right? There's nothing to do but face it. You can try and run away, which is what tried, David tried to do. But God will not let us run away. And that's actually where I think this psalm starts. David wrote, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, there are a bunch of theological words in there that sort of that sort of, it's easy to get lost in the theological words. And I'm going to slow down, and we're going to work through this little bit by little bit to kind of understand this, like in our language. Have mercy on me, O God, because I'm awesome and deserve to have mercy shown to me? No. Right? Because when you wake up and you realize that you're broken and that you're in rebellion, you can't turn around and say, I deserve this. It's embarrassing to even try to say it. You have to forgive me. You have to treat me this way. You have to whatever. There's nothing but condemnation on us. Anybody ever experienced that? Or you just feel so much like, wow. And so what does he appeal to? He appeals to how wonderful God is. The fact that God's love is steadfast, meaning that God's love doesn't waver. And according to his abundant mercy, meaning that God is so much mercy for us. Um. David turns to God and says, I know that you love me and your love doesn't waver. And I know that you have mercy and that you have mercy beyond what I can even imagine. Please, God, have mercy on me. I was talking with my son this morning. I'm not going to use a personal thing in the sermon. But I told my son something that I heard once and I, I feel it all the time. There is nothing, Titus... There's nothing you can do that will ever make me love you less. And if it's true of me and my son and my daughter and me and Josh and all this, then it's certainly true of God and us. You cannot go anywhere. You cannot do anything. You cannot sin to a depth that God will cease to love you. Isn't that amazing? You ever feel unloved? You ever feel unworthy? It is never ending for God. Whether we 
see it in the moment or not. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Meaning like, just make them gone. Make it go away. Wash me thoroughly from my, like, I'm so filthy, clean me. Take this stuff off of me and make me clean. Did you ever feel shame that wouldn't go away? Feel condemnation that you wanted to just pour out on yourself? And that's what David's saying. I'm completely disgusting. I'm dirty. I'm, I'm filthy. Please take this off me. And so, I've got to check my slides and make sure I'm not missing something. Sorry, guys. I, I'm just sort of riffing now, and I'm going to end up going way too long doing that. Um, and so what David recognizes here, like, first off, is that, like, God is forgiving him because he's God. And all he wants is this forgiveness. And so we're going to move on. Verses 3 to 6. Ooh. Uh, I have a timer. I try to stay in a certain range. It's not going to happen. I'm so sorry. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Ooh, there's a lot there. Um, and so let's dig into this. Uh, again, not an English teacher this. There's structure in this and all kinds of other cool stuff. But if you spend so much time admiring the structure, you can lose the beauty of the bigger thing. And the beauty of the bigger thing is this. It's that, like, as like David is in this spot where his transgressions are ever before me. And like, this is it. Like, I remember waking up. So this is my, my, my analogy. I remember waking up and looking down and thinking, uh, what now? Because my shirt was up. And I'm like, why, why am I swelling? Why do I hurt? Why am I broken? And I tried to ignore it. And the more I tried to ignore it, the longer I tried to ignore it, the more it hurt. Hidden sin will always do that to you. If you try to bury your brokenness, if you try to bury your failures, your shortfall, your, your whatever, you try to bury that stuff, and it will just hurt more and more and more and more. And the more you try to ignore it, the harder it is. And this is where David is. David is in a spot where he cannot escape it because it's always in front of him. Put your thumb right there and jump ahead to, we're going to go quick so you either find it faster, I'm sorry. Uh, we're going to jump ahead to Second uh, Corinthians Chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. So Paul had this weird relationship with the church in Corinth, and they ended up like there's a lot of hurt between them. And they like chase him off at one point. They literally run him out of town. These are people that like he's friends with and he loves. And they like turn on him because he's like, hey, guys, you're teaching some false doctrine here. Let's deal with it. And they're like, nope. And he, they attack him and chase him off. And Paul writes in this letter after the reconciliation has happened, and he says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you are grieved, but because you are grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What does that mean? That means that godly grief makes you stand in a place where you say, I know this is what has happened, and I need to take ownership of it in front of everybody. I need to confess this stuff. I need to put it out there, and I need to go and make it right. I, when I quit drinking, what, 18 years ago, um, I had to confess to people. Like, I tried to hide everything. I tried to ignore it. I tried to put it away, and I had to confess to people. I had to go around and find people I hadn't talked to for years and confess sins against them. I had to stand in a stranger's living room so he could, you know, put me in front of his family so I could, I confessed, I, I wronged this guy. I don't want to get into it right now, and I, I didn't know him. And so I went door to door in the neighborhood I thought he lived in and, and asked, do I know you? And this guy opened his door and immediately, before I said a word, said, oh, it's Eric. I hadn't talked to him in years. I didn't know him, but he knew my name. 
And I confessed my sin to him, and I asked him for grace. And he said, hold on a second. He brought me into his living room, and he called all his kids in and put them on the couch. And he had his wife come in and sit down, and he said, do it again. Wow. Because I originally felt guilt, and I, it was a guilt that made me want to hide. It made me want to bury. It made me want to cover it up so no one could see it. It made me want to pretend that everything wasn't swollen and broken and that I wasn't dying. Right? But at the end of the day, godly sorrow is in front of you and it says, what? Oh, can somebody get me a glass of water? Um, Godly sorrow brings you to a place where you desire, where you I remember when I started to overcome my alcoholism, I I laid in bed one night uh, because my wife prayed for me, and God responded to her prayer, which is why I'm afraid of her. Uh, She prayed for God to fix me or kill me. And I woke up in the middle of the night, and I felt all this weight, and I just laid in bed and said, God, I don't care what happens. I just want to be right with you again. And I started working to make it right. If you are in a place where you confess and your desire is to make it right, that's confession that has power, that is godly sorrow, like Paul is talking about. If you confess so that you can hide it some more, so you can try to assuage your guilt, that is not godly sorrow. And it leads you further and further to burying and hiding and dealing and not dealing with it. Ultimately, godly sorrow is what David is experiencing, because David is saying, it's in front of me, and I'm dealing with it. And he says, against you and you alone I have sinned. There's a lot to this, okay? Like, I don't want to get into it, because it... It becomes the theology of the song. Thank you so much, Titus. It becomes the theology of the song rather than um, rather than Brown Eyed Girl, right? You can't you can't ruin that song. You can't ruin Stairway to Heaven by analyzing it. You ruin it by playing it at a guitar shop over and over again for years. Um, like two people got that joke. Thank you. It was Wayne's World and so forth. Uh, just making sure people are still awake. I know it's hot, and it's been like 20 minutes, and I've barely touched the text. Stop it, Titus. Um, it's recognizing this is what I was made to be. I was made to be in God's image, and I'm not. And I'm not because I choose not to be, because I make these choices not to be. And looking and saying, this is what I'm supposed to be, this is what I'm not. And striving to become what God meant me to be. And it begins with confession, which is awful and wonderful. Now, um, against you and you alone, how do we read this? I'm not going to get into the several understandings, none of this stuff. Like, really quick, David is in a contract, in a covenant with God. And his sin, ultimately, in everything that he did, in stealing his neighbor's wife, in murdering, in hiding, in everything, is failing to be what God designed him to be. Did he wrong Uriah? 100%. He wrong other people, 110%. But like he violated the contract, the covenant, the agreement between him and God. And what he's saying is, this is the mistake. This is the sin. Now, sometimes we find ourselves in a place where we say, well, it's not that bad. That's not what's happening here. I read some interesting stuff in the Talmud where they said, well, David didn't actually sin by murdering his neighbor and stealing his wife. That wasn't a real sin in the action it was in. And then this whole convoluted argument as to why David didn't sin. And it's like, like the rabbis did that for him. But in reality, like we do that, I do that for me all the time. Here's why I'm not wrong. And in reality, if you paint a pile of garbage, still garbage. Paint a Dodge pickup. Ah, still a Dodge. You church up your sin. You say, God is okay with me doing whatever I want. Like, it's still sin. And so he is putting it out there saying, listen, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what I do. I, I wronged you, God. You have this mercy for me. You've given me these things. You've blessed me so much. And I blew it. I sinned. I rebelled. And actually, it's interesting. Blameless in your judgment. I really want to touch on this fast. Um, if you read the book of Job, Job is all about God, or Job demanding God come and speak to him because he didn't do anything wrong. And this is the opposite, where he's like, yeah, God, I, I sin. 
I sin, I can't undo it. I can't fix it. I can't clean myself. I can't anything. I need you. It's the anti-Job moment. More on that Wednesday. But it's powerful because that's what happens when we come to a place of real repentance where we're like, I can't even defend what I did. I can't even make myself wonderful in your eyes. I can't even anything. I just need mercy. Because if my own goodness is still good enough, I don't really need anybody's help. Verse 6, I want to touch on real quick. Um, It's because... um, I'm going to read it again, sorry. Oh my gosh, I'm getting bogged down. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What's he saying here? So here's the idea. Like David was called by God a man after his own heart. He's literally the only guy in the Bible who's called a man after God's own heart. Who slept with his neighbor's wife and then murdered him after trying to cover it up. Right? Man after God's own heart. What? How can that guy be godly? Because none of you, none of me, none of us is godly on our own. We're godly because God cleans us. Period. That's it. You will not achieve it on your own. I will not achieve it on our own, on my own. Anybody who pretends they're better than you and more righteous and more good is pretending, and that's it. God teaches us. God changes us. God redesigns us. And we're going to get to how. Uh, seven to nine. Sorry, I'm going to try and jam down the gas here because it's getting warmer and people are going to fall asleep and everything else. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Ooh, love this. Love it. I want to spend a whole sermon on this. Um, What is hyssop? Hyssop is essentially a plant that grows everywhere. It's... um, Actually, there's stuff out here. I was going to put a picture in, and I didn't. I'm sorry. Um, but what they would do is they would take bundles of this hyssop stuff, and they would tie it together. And they would, like, if you've ever been to, like, a Catholic church, they have a little, like, like uh, uh, stick that they use to put holy water on stuff, to sprinkle it, right? Like, some of you all know what I'm talking about? Hyssop is the original version of that. It's a plant that they would dip in water or in blood, and they would throw for cleansing, as a part of religious ceremony. And so what David is saying here is, I need you to take this hyssop and cleanse me. Well, what the heck? Why that? Now, there are two spots where we see hyssop used prominently that I think apply here. If you want to write them down and look them up yourself, you can. I'm not going to dig into them because I'm trying to not be here till tomorrow. Um, The first one's in Exodus, Exodus 12. Those of you guys who are familiar maybe with Exodus 12, this is about the time the angel of death passes over. And what happens in this moment is the slaves Israel, right? And there's symbolism there. We are slaves in our sin. Even if we're God's chosen people, if I sin, if I have to hide from my stuff, if I wake up in the morning and I'm swollen and broken and I pretend it's not there or I know it's there, I'm still enslaved to it. It's still there. I can't take it off. And in the process of of like being slaves. They're surrounded by the Egyptians who are not slaves, who are the enslavers. And God, to free them, sends the angel of death over and the firstborn son die. Like all the firstborn sons in Egypt die except for the Israelites. And God said, what you'll do is you'll sacrifice this lamb, the Passover lamb. Jews still, actually, I don't think they sacrifice a Passover lamb anymore. That's a whole long thing too. Um, But they would sacrifice this Passover lamb and they would take the blood of this Passover lamb and they would cover their doors with it. And what happened was when the angel came over, saw the blood of the lamb over their homes and said, I'm going to show these people mercy and pass over. And the reason that Israelites continue to do that is that they would remember God sees the blood of the lamb and passes over us. By the way, that is not about what it's about. It's about Jesus. Because Jesus, like, I can't undo my sins. You can't undo your sins. You can't undo your sins. Like, none of us can. And so I require someone to do this in my place. I am never going to be good enough to undo bad stuff I've done. I can throw a rock or a starburst at Rebecca, and if if I see it flying, the moment it's left my hand, I can't call it back. 
Can't do it. And so having sinned, having acted, I can never, ever, ever of my own effort. And so what God does is he says, I will cover you with protection. I will cover you with forgiveness. And so the story of Jesus, like it's hard to understand unless you know it, that Jesus is God coming to us, realizing we will never be able to climb to him, never be good enough, never be righteous enough, never be holy enough. He comes down to us and stands amongst us as a, as a man. And he never sins. He is innocent. He is perfect. And he is punished in our place. God pours his wrath out on Jesus when he's crucified And Jesus is punished for every wrong thing I do. And when I read this, when David read it, he's talking about a sacrificial system. When I read it, I'm saying, God, I I screw up. I sin. I rebel. I I even when I'm trying to do right, half the time I do the wrong thing. And the only thing that'll cleanse me is is the blood of the Lamb over me. Um the only thing that'll cleanse me wash away my sins is the fact that Jesus died in my place. I don't deserve it. It's only because of his mercy, unending mercy, of his unfailing love that I receive that. I don't deserve it. And so I have to come back to him over and over again. I need to ask to be washed. The second verse I have cited there is in Numbers, and it has to do with ritual uncleanliness, and you would use hyssop to throw blood to create cleanliness. In the Hebrews verse we're going to get to later. Um, So then he says, broken bones and gladness. What on earth is that about? Right? Now, I'm going to come back to my swelling. Uh, Sorry, everybody still awake? Can I? Okay. I finally, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I go to the doctor, and I'm embarrassed because it's not a grapefruit anymore. And I can hardly stand up, and I can hardly walk because I'm hurting so badly. And I went to the doctor, and my shirt is bulged out like, like a pregnant woman, except all pregnant women are beautiful, and I was not. And here's the thing. I remember walking in the door and running into someone I know. And, they, and I was embarrassed, to be honest with you, because I was swollen and broken and sick. And I remember pretending I wasn't. Isn't that insane? You ever do something and you think, well, that's insane. Why would I have done that? But you did it. I'm standing there and I'm like a pregnant lady. And I'm talking to this person and pretending there's nothing wrong with me. Oh, why are you here today? Oh, appointment for your kid? Oh, and they're like, what? 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 I don't know. I woke up and it was that way. I'm fine. And I'm like, not even this. It's, I'm fine. And I sat. And went into the doctor. And our doctor, I kid you not, this guy's last name was Christ. C-H-R-I-S-T. They may have, actually, you guys had the same doctor, didn't you? You didn't? All right, well, whatever. You should have found a better doctor. Uh, <laughs> it explains a lot about TJ. I'm just anyway, <laughs> Dr. Chris was humorless about being called Dr. Christ. I did it the first time I was there. I never did it again. I thought it every time I walked in the room. He laid me down, took my shirt off, and was like, uh, what? Like, what? Was it just like this? Did you just, you waited eight hours to come and have this looked at? Are you kidding me? And I'm laying there, and he's like, look, I need to examine this. And he steps forward, and he puts his hand on my stomach, and you know what I did? I rolled up, and I turned over, and I did not let him touch it. You know why? Because it hurt. Because it hurt so bad. And sometimes we do that. Sometimes our sin gets so awful that rather than letting the great physician, rather than letting Dr. Christ himself touch it and figure it out and heal us, we want to hide. We want to pretend. And he tried several times, and finally he said, I don't know what's wrong with you. I can only guess. He said, I think it's possible. The worst case is you have a a hernia, like a section of bowel that's broken through your abdomen wall, and it's set off, it's blocked off. And he's like, you have a few hours to get emergency surgery or you will die. Okay. 
And he's like, all right, I need you to go to the emergency room. Don't go to the hospital. Go to the emergency room. Check yourself in. I'm going to call ahead. You need to be seen immediately. This needs to be done. And I remember driving to the doctor across town, the ER, and uh, from uh, Mishawaka to South Bend, for those of you all who are in the know. And I'm on the phone, and nobody's answering their phone. So I, like, leave Jess a message, like, hey, honey, I saw Dr. Christ, and uh, he said I have to have emergency surgery. I'm going to die. Uh, Seriously, I'm not even kidding. No inflection, no nothing. I just sort of said, look, i got to go to the hospital and get emergency surgery. I'm going to die. That's it. And so, you know, that's where I'll be. Uh, Love you. Bye. And then I called my boss, and I left him a message because he didn't answer the phone. And I said, uh, Vince Turner was his name, and some of you guys from the area know him, or know of him probably. And I said, hey, Vince, uh, I I have to go get emergency surgery or I'm going to die. Uh, I know I called in sick today. I'll try and be in work tomorrow if I can. Uh, I'm not kidding. And he actually later called me and yelled at me on my voicemail saying, don't you dare walk in the door again. But you know what I was doing? I was pretending it wasn't that bad. I had a doctor tell me, if you do not heal from this, you will die. And you know what I did? Okay. We still do that with sin, don't we? I know I'm addicted. I know this, this alcohol, this pornography, this, this anger, this bitterness, this, this thing that I'm hiding and pretending no one can see it when everybody can. I know it's going to kill me. Like the scriptures told me it'll kill me. But I'm going to pretend it's not because I, I, because I, I want to pretend it's not that bad. Because I don't want people to see me horrible. Because I don't want people to see me broken. Because of whatever reason, shame drives us into the shadows. And it's a horrible thing that like the church, like people hide from us. Like, we're the people who should be healing sin. I hide from the church because I, I sometimes, like, I, people tell me their stuff and they confess their sins and they talk about their struggles and, and I, I'm that guy. Like, that's my job, right? I don't tell people anything because I'm ashamed of myself and I don't want you guys to know that I'm, that I'm not perfect. I think a lot of people recently have figured out I'm not perfect. I'm trying I'm trying to be more open. It sucks. But I remember going into the emergency room and walking in and saying to the guy at the desk, or the gal at the desk, hey, uh, doctor sent me here. He said, I need emergency surgery. I'm going to die. i got a few hours. And she's like, okay, well, I'll take this and sit down. <laughs> and I filled out the form, and I put it back up. And about four hours, four, five? It was like four or five hours later, I'm laying on the floor. There's no one else there. Yes, in the emergency room. I'm laying in the waiting room thinking, how many hours did the doctor say? And I'm in the fetal position, and I'm hurting so bad I can hardly move. And I remember they they finally called my name, and I went in, and they're like, okay, we're going to take some tests, and we're going to see what's going on. And, like, nobody checked my stomach, nothing. I'm laying in a little room on the gurney with the curtain. No, it wasn't a curtain. It was actually a room. And I remember finally a nurse came in, and she pulled my shirt up, and, like, I, my stomach had broken open, and I was bleeding openly. And I, I swear to you, you, I love nurses and doctors because they're so calm. You know what I mean? They see something horrible, and they're like, oh, because that's their job is to not freak you out. And she jumped about three feet in the air, and she hit her head on the ceiling and the back wall. And she's like, oh, my gosh. And then she immediately composed herself and said, I'm going to go get the doctor. From the point where it broke open and that infection, that brokenness was no longer hidden in my gut and it began to pour out of me, the pain started to go away. The pressure was gone. It began to just just empty. And this is the truth of sin. This is the truth of secret sin, of hidden brokenness and failure and falling short of Jesus like the standard he sets for us. This is the truth of it. The only way to deal with it is to bleed it out. Is to let the doctor come in and empty it out. To confess your sins. Not just to God, but out loud. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said that one of the reasons that we don't confess sin to each other 
Like we're afraid to confess sin to each other, but we're okay confessing sin to God. You ever notice that? It's easy to say, God, I did this. God, I thought this. God, I was wrong here. But it's really hard to like say it to another person is because we're confessing to ourselves. We've made up a God that we think isn't going to be scarier than the guy next to us. And so we confess to God instead of other people because we are talking to ourselves. In reality, God is far scarier than Callan or um, Daniel or John or Jimmy or anyone else. He just is. But we pretend. And in reality, we have to confess to each other so that we can empty ourselves out and pull the infection from inside us. And the doctor, I remember, he gave me a couple shots, pulled out that scalpel, cut me. I have a great scar in my belly button. Chicks dig scars. Uh, Yeah, and you knew me well enough to know I'm not tough. Uh, But that broken bone, that broken bone rejoiced. When our pride is broken, when our hearts are broken, when we are broken thoroughly and brought before Christ to be made whole and clean, that brokenness is amazing. I cannot tell you how wonderful it was and how humiliating it was at the same time to stand in front of that family and confess my sin. There's a whole other story there. Ask me another day and I'll tell it to you. But I discovered God had watched out for me and had I never confessed, I would have never found out. But there's joy and freedom and there's only freedom when your bones break. And honestly, I've broken bones and they all hurt now. When it rains, it hurts. Right? They all hurt never goes away. But that pain is a reminder to me that Christ healed me. That pain is a reminder and a way for me to talk to other folks who are broken. I talk about my alcoholism very openly, not because I'm proud of it, but because people do the same thing. And a lot of times it's really hard to say it to anyone. But knowing that I'm awful and worse than all of you makes it okay and I can help. And this is one of the blessings of sin. I sort of want to split this sermon in half now. Do you guys want me to keep going or split it? Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, I have, like, the truth is there's just joy in restoration. Okay, I am going to split it. I'm going to do a couple more things here. Uh, You want to jump me to the next slide? Um, This is Spurgeon saying... A broken heart cannot keep secrets. Now all is revealed. Now its, in essence, now its essence goes forth. Far too much of our praying and our worship is like closed up boxes. You cannot tell what is in them. But it is not so with broken hearts. When broken hearts sing, they do sing. When broken hearts groan, they do groan. Broken hearts never play at repenting, never play at believing. With broken hearts, the hymn is real. It is a real hymn. A prayer is a real prayer. The hearing of sermons is earnest work. The preaching of them is the hardest work of all. And I will say amen to that. Oh, what a mercy it would be if some of you were to be broken all to pieces. There are many flowers that will never yield their perfume until they are bruised. If you jump to Hebrews real quick, the truth of this text is sort of there. And I'm cutting and shifting, and my wife is probably panicking. Um, So I'll do the rest of Psalm 51 next week. Uh, But we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, not 19 to 22 there. Hold on, let me check the next slide. 4 to 10 is what we're going to be reading. And what is going on here? The book of Hebrews is all about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Jewish religion, right? And like, um, it is about how all of these sacrifices, how the hyssop, cleanse me with hyssop, meaning throw blood on me, how that is the story of Christ forgiving you, okay? And so what he says here, he says, listen, um, actually, I'm going to go a little earlier, uh, well, no, I'll start in three, sorry. Um, but in these sacrifices, meaning all of these sacrifices for sin, 
right? Like the ones the priests offered, the ones that everybody offered. I sinned, I will offer this sacrifice. In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of a bull or goats to take away sin. So this thing that covers me, this thing that David is begging God, wash it off me, blot it out, don't look at it ever again, please just make me clean. It is impossible for that blood to cleanse us, this thing that David is begging for. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So what he's saying there, he's like, Jesus came into the world. He said, listen, God, these offerings were never enough. I'm here to do this. Because they were always about Jesus. They were always pointing forward to him. In English class, you would call that foreshadowing. But we're not going to do English class today, so forget that part. But they were always foreshadowing Christ. And so when David was there saying, God, cleanse me, he was asking for Jesus, the blood of Jesus, to be put on him to take away the murder to take away the adultery, the, the perversion, the, the lying, the, the lying to himself, the humiliation that he deserves. He's saying, God, take all that stuff away from me by the blood of Jesus. He didn't know it yet, but it counted is what's really awesome. We're going to jump ahead to 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is... Through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's Hebrews saying there? This is all I want you to get from this sermon. Okay? This is it. If, if you slept through it, I'm sorry. I know I'm not that interesting. It's really warm in here. I think so. This is it. David stood before God and said, God, I've sinned. God, I've failed. God, I tried to hide it. I tried to pretend. I tried to do this thing, and it never was going to work. And I'm broken. I need to be washed. Wash me. And in Christ, we are washed. And it's not, I earn that washing. It is, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you're forgiven. You don't earn it. It's a gift. And even when I was at my worst, even when I was an enemy of God, even when I was lying and stealing, like I went through recovery. I did my alcoholism as a minister. So like we can multiply my sin. He still died for me. He still died for you. He died to take away the stuff you think about when you can't sleep at night. Whether it's your own sin or the anger you have whatever it is. I couldn't sleep last night thinking about this sermon and about my own brokenness and things I've done wrong that I've hurt people. But ultimately, Christ has taken it away. It's free. He says, talks about his sin being like scarlet, right? Red, like blood, guilt. Um, when I worked at the home, we had this program. Um, it was a drug treatment program, and they would do this thing at the end of a kid's treatment where they were not allowed to confess their sins to their parents. They had to do it in a controlled setting. And they would have this last thing they did after, you know, like a year sometimes of, of digging and, and, and agonizing and hurting and trying to clean it up and trying to figure out how to live again and everything else. They would sit down with their parents, and they would have a face-to-face, and they would confess everything, every wrong deed, every stolen thing, every moment of hatred and bitterness, every hurt, everything that had ever been done to them that made them unclean, right? And I sat through a bunch of these, and because I wasn't, like, I was the chaplain, and so I would talk to people, but I wouldn't sit every day in their groups and hear them go through this. And all the kids would gather up, and they would put their hands on the person while they confessed, and they'd look their parents in the eye, and they would talk about just the most shameful, horrible stuff. And at the end of it, at the end of it, the student would give their parents a blank piece of paper. 
and a blank piece of paper was for the parents to do whatever they wanted with. But when the parent decided they were ready, they were supposed to give it to their child to say, I forgive you. You have a blank slate with me. That's all clean. I never watched that happen without feeling like I was watching something I had no business watching. Something so personal and, and intimate. It was always awful. We had a staff, this very devout Christian woman who started working in that program. Her first day of work, she went to this meeting and she watched about half of a young lady's uh, clean slate conversation. She talked about filthy stuff, shameful stuff. And this girl's dad is looking her in the eye as she talks about degrading herself and, and all of this just awful stuff. And the staff person who walked in the door saying, I just want to touch these kids' lives for Jesus, said to Dave uh, DeCampos, the guy who worked with her, he said, hey, I'm going to go take my lunch break. She went and clocked out and left her keys on the counter and never came back. Because as much as we say, I want Jesus to clean people, the reality is that people are, the stuff that's in our heart, we become like David, where David says, hey, I wasn't even clean when I was born. Nothing about me is okay. Everything's filthy. Everything's broken. Everything is wrong. I'll say it to y'all. Everything about me. But I serve a Jesus who has given me, I serve a God who loves me and has given me a clean slate. And here's the thing. Because I got that clean slate, and then I sinned some more. You know, it's crazy. You think, oh, that's right. And then you fall. I quit drinking after my way, you know, the prayer and staying up all night and crying and praying. And I drank again. And I couldn't stop. It was awful. Because I was a slave to it. And here's the thing. You look, I got a pile of clean slates right here. And you think, well, how many times is Jesus going to forgive me? Seven? I'll tell you. If you're sitting in the room with us today. This is the tip of the iceberg. The iceberg never ends. You cannot run far enough to escape God's grace. He loves you. He died for you. Died to make you whole. Died to make you clean. Whether you believe it or not. Whether you believe you deserve it or not. He says all you have to do is accept the gift I got for you. And sometimes we don't want to. I'm all about forgiveness. I've preached it a million times. And I've spent months not taking the paper because I don't want to be forgiven. I'm mad at me. And I suspect there are other people in that boat. Other people who have been hurt and they're like, I'm going to hold on to this. Other people who are see their own sin and they think if anybody knew who I am, nobody would love me. Nobody would deal with me. And I tell you, before God, you can be clean. I'm going to finish and I'm going to walk out the door. That's my plan. Got it? If you want to hang out and talk, you can. Most of y'all are probably hungry and have to pee. I'm not saying that because I have to. I mean, break the moment. I've been told that forever. If you feel like it, feel like you need grace. You need God to make you whole and clean and turn you into who you were meant to be. Come and grab a clean slate. He's offering it to you. Some of y'all are feeling it. He's offering it to you. Come and get it if you want. If you've got something and you need to give it to someone who needs it, do it. Because the scriptures say, like, the measure by which you forgive others, what you be forgiven by. And I'm not saying that, oh, you have to forgive people, but rather to be forgiven by Christ is to be like Christ. Is to be a giver of grace. Is to let go of this world and the debts that people owe us and say, I got nothing except Jesus. And so, if you need forgiveness, if you need grace, if you need to hand it off, if you need to figure out how to clean yourself, if you need a reminder, hang it on your wall, and people will be like, why do you have a blank piece of paper? Oh, it's to remind me. There's nothing written on it. Exactly. 
Pick up and do whatever you want with it. I can't tell you. I don't know your heart. I don't know where you're at. But we're going to close in prayer. I'm going to walk away to take care of some important business. Heavenly Father, I talked way too much and way too long. I didn't even finish the sermon. Lord God, I know that my arrogance, I think I can say the right thing. In my pride, I think I can save everyone. I think I'm the only one. I think I'm all of these things. But in reality, when I try to do anything, it blows up in my face. It's only by the Son of God. It's only by your Son who died for us that we receive a clean piece of paper. And that with broken bones then, we can sing out in a way that is that is amazing and full of joy. And I pray that broken bones would hobble forward and receive grace. And that they would sing with us. Amen. Have a good Sunday.